Hi, you're listening to the Raw Heart and Soul podcast with Tanya Carroll, where I talk with people whose life stories will inspire you and provoke thoughts about how you can live your best life by finding and following your soul purpose. Hey, did you know that I'm a coach? Well, I am. I'm a Czech professional, which means I'm a corrective exercise and physical training coach, as well as a holistic lifestyle coach. I do this face-to-face in the chiropractic clinic I share with my husband in Melbourne, as well as online all over the world. This means that I will share with you the tools that have helped others understand what living a healthy life looks and feels like, what it takes for you to get a good night's sleep, to have honest and fulfilling and meaningful relationships with the people in your life that you love, and for you to be working in a job that is fulfilling. I will help you find and live your sole purpose. I also help you understand your own personal nutrition, including digestion and all things elimination on an individual level with the stand, without the standard cookie cutter approach that just doesn't work. I have programs that include group coaching as well as one-on-one that will suit your needs and fit into your budget. If you're interested, I hope that you will go to my website, rawheartandsoul.com for more information and join our community on Facebook and Instagram at Raw Heart and Soul. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Stacey Brown. Stacey Brown is a hairdresser, Reiki practitioner and intuitive healer. Her family's lives were upended by a trauma almost two years ago, and she is now on a mission to document her healing journey and help remove the stigma of mental health and substance abuse issues. Stacey has an online beauty business that was birthed when her career as a hairdresser was halted by their family trauma. Stacey loves people and simply wants to help make the world a better place in whatever way she can. This podcast comes with a trigger warning. During this podcast, we discuss teenage suicide, teenage drug addiction, and serious mental health issues. If you have children in listening range, I do not recommend continuing listening to this podcast without earphones. If you or your family are experiencing trauma or if anything we discuss in this podcast causes you discomfort, please seek advice from your health support network. Hi, and welcome to the Raw Heart and Soul podcast. Today I have with me um, a friend who I've just recently met through Instagram. Stacey, welcome, Stacey. Hi, how are you? It's so good to be here. It's awesome to have you here. Um, tell us a little bit about your career and family life. Okay. Uh, I've had a very interesting journey. I grew up longing to be a hairdresser, but I didn't pursue that dream until I was a single mom with three little children Mm -hmm. and I put myself through beauty school and I had the most incredible career path. It really led to beautiful things, traveling, taking classes with some of the um, most lucrative people in the industry. And excuse me, it was a journey that was nothing like I could have expected and exactly what I needed to empower me to give me self-esteem. Yeah. And um, 15 years in, Uh, My son at the age of 17 uh, attempted to take his own life by running his car into a tree at a hundred miles an hour. Wow. Yes. And when that happened, my career came to a screeching halt and I spent seven months unemployed caring for him, which I know we'll get into in a minute. (laughs) Um, But I had to rebuild myself. I had to rebuild Um, not just my brand, we're talking about my business right now, right? But I had to rebuild my entire life. I had to rebuild my career. Yeah. I had to, and I'm still in the process of rebuilding my body. 
Yeah. You can hear I'm a little raspy. I'm, I am working on rebuilding my health. Yeah. Um, I'm also a certified Reiki practitioner and an intuitive healer. Yes. Yes. And an intuitive healer. So I have a little salon, um, space, and then I also have a Reiki space right next to it. And, um, I have had to start from the ground up, which I didn't expect to do at 44. And it has, I'm still in process. I'm still in the process of doing that. And now I have a beauty business that is mainly focused online and I see clients part-time yeah. and I am working on getting my life back together. <laughs> yeah. That's the best way to say it. Let's go back a step. So where did, like, when did you go into the Reiki healing and the intuitive healing? When did you realize that that was going to be part of your, or when did you realize that that was a calling for you? If it is a calling. I was very familiar with energy because I put my hands on people for a living. Mm. And I noticed that when I did, I could sense certain things that were going on within them that I didn't know how else I could sense, but I felt it when I touched them. Mm. So I knew there was power in touch and I knew there was an energy exchange, but I was raised in a very devoutly religious home and it conflicted with the way I was raised. I couldn't, I couldn't align, um, the way I was raised with what I felt yeah. until, until mm -hmm. someone said the word Reiki. Yeah. And I said, what is this? Decided to take a chance and take a class. And I ended up taking a second class and, uh, started my, my own healing journey. I really started with self Reiki yeah. and made that a focus for I think a good six months before I ever worked on another person. Mm. So yeah, I've, I've had a really interesting journey. How did your family take that? And are you still close with your family? If they're devout Christians, then <clears throat> how was this work? Because I know um, the work that I do is very, it's not Reiki, but it's very similar. So I work with people in their energy fields and, and oftentimes that does like when people go into this, it conflicts with what they've been programmed or what, how they've been raised. So how did your family um, take that news when you said that, or have you told them that you were doing that? Tanya, this is a beautiful question and also a loaded one. <laughs> um, so I was raised uh, Mormon. I was raised um, a, a Latter-day Saint yep. and um, my uh, father left my mother uh, very abruptly when I was in my twenties and my entire family left the Mormon church. Yeah, wow. So when that happened, it kind of left me to create a new path and try to navigate that and figure out and understand what I believed mm -hmm. about God and the, and the world and energy and how that works. And I, I would say I'm absolutely still on the journey. I do a lot of intuitive readings for people um, where I tell them what it is that I sense. Um, and I had a very profound experience with my son when he was in the hospital that energetically and, um, and even physically helped to save his life and has made me even more passionate about doing energy work. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about your son and what, what, what led to that point where he crashed the car? So my son, um, was a very successful and smart kid 
He was a fighter from day one. When he was a baby, he was in the NICU. You know, he, he was the biggest baby and the sickest baby in the NICU. Yeah. And he fought against all odds from the moment he came into this world. And he was a sensitive child. He was absolutely my most sensitive child. Um, and he was a football player. He was a varsity football player in high school. He got great grades, charming, had that nice swoop of hair, you know, like looking like a, an old movie star, uh, just so charming and so endearing. And I saw a change in him as he got into the years of driving a car, which here in the States is 17. And I have a picture of him that I look at often. That is the day that I took him to get his driver's license. Mm -hmm. And it's the last time I can really see that sweet face of my boy. And he started to hang out with the wrong crowd. It started with um, smoking marijuana and then it led into smoking a lot of marijuana and drinking and he overdosed on household substances that he researched on the internet in our house four months before the car crash. And we knew then that he had some sort of problem with substance abuse and some type of mental health. I don't think we knew to the extent of what that was, but we were in the process of trying to figure that out. And he was upset with some rules that we had in place for our family. And he very abruptly moved out of our home four days before the car crash and in with um, his girlfriend and her enabling mom. He had an argument with his girlfriend and he told her that he didn't know that he could live without her. And he got in the car and um, decided to end it. Yeah. Was there a history of substance abuse in your family before this? Um, Yes. My husband is in recovery and has been for over a decade, I want to say we're coming up on maybe 12 years. Um, and his addiction was impactful on our family enough that it split our marriage up and we actually divorced and we were divorced for many years and we rekindled when he was several years sober and we just remarried four years ago. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. How did your husband take that then when, let's go back a step again. Hmm? Let's go back a step. What, how did, how did you feel when you got the phone call? So I didn't get the phone call. Um, I had left the house that morning to go and get my nails done with a friend of mine and I took my phone with me. I had it with me the whole time. We had had another family emergency a couple years before, and I got the Apple watch so that I could be alerted if anything happened. I didn't get any alerts, nothing like that. I got home. I came down the stairs that are right in front of me right now. 
and I sat down because I looked at my phone and it's, I had a 911 for my husband, a text. It just said 911. And I sat down on the steps and I called him because I knew we don't text 911, something's wrong. Mm. For some reason, my phone hadn't received any calls that morning. It was 1141 when I received that text message and the car crash was at 930. Yes, it's two hours almost. Two hours after he was already at the hospital by the time we were alerted to anything and his condition was severe enough that they would not disclose any information. And we were offered a police, a highway police escort to get us there. That must've been awful, beyond awful. It, it, your body goes into shock. When you hear that, your brain stops being able to function. It's like a short circuit and you're, you feel your body moving through the motions, but it's really hard to process exactly what's happening. And by the time we got to the hospital, uh, this, the head surgeon of shock trauma in our major city, which is Baltimore, um, he came walking towards me and he, he's saying, I'm going to do everything I can to try and save your son. Mm. And shock is such an overwhelming, overpowering thing that I found myself sitting there and staring at his eyebrows Yeah, and just thinking this man needs to trim his eyebrows. I couldn't even take in what he was saying to me because it was you never think you're going to lose your child. You never think your children will go before you. It, and it, it was a, a numbing, overwhelming thing. Yes. And it just got harder as it went on. When did you realize, or when were you told that it was a suicide attempt? I, I knew within the first couple of days, we started putting the pieces of the puzzle together um, he was in a medically induced coma for quite a while after the accident. And when you're in a medically induced coma, they slowly wake you up for a few minutes at a time so that they don't overstimulate the brain. And he did have a traumatic brain injury as one of his many injuries. And I remember at one of the times him waking up and just directly asking him and him nodding his head. Yes, he couldn't speak. He had a trach in. Um, and, and we had to really piece it together. It took a while to figure it out. But I would say within the first week, we knew. After the first suicide attempt at home with the substances, did he, was there, were services available to you and the family to help you through that? So the first, the first overdose was not an attempt. He, he was trying to get high. Um, but we did have some tools in place. I will say (laughs) the United States really sucks right now when it comes to how we take care of people who have mental health and substance abuse issues. Yeah. And that's why, because we are not terrible. We are not doing what we need to. And here's the thing. This is, this is probably what bothers me the most is that if somebody has cancer, they don't hide away for the most part, right? People rally around them as a community and 
they, they come out and say, I have cancer and it's met with sympathy and kindness and generosity. And we don't have that same respect for these two sometimes coexisting illnesses. Mm -hmm. And I think unless or until we as a society, we as a world start coming together and having more compassion, we are not going to be able to fix this problem because it's a disease it is. and it's ravaging lives. It's mm -hmm. ravaging lives. Um, I'll tell you a really interesting story about that real quick. Yeah, <laughs> um, so when I was seeking treatment for my son, I had to search all over the country, trying to find a place that would take our insurance mm -hmm. and that would meet his needs of having the co-occurring issues. And when I say that, I mean the mental health component and the substance abuse component in case I, anybody doesn't know. Yeah. And, um, we got a call from the rehab that we had him in and they called and they told us that we had until 5 PM to go and pick our son up in another state because his insurance coverage was ending. And we had to pay out of pocket several hundred dollars a day to keep him there. Mm. I had to fight a lot of battles during this time with my son, but one of this was the most significant one. And that was, I called the rehab where he was and I begged them to tell me who the doctor was that had denied my son's care. And somebody at the rehab did something they weren't supposed to. And they gave me that doctor's number mm. and I called him and I said, I'm really glad that I have your number now. And I was talking directly to him. He answered the phone. Mm. I said, I'm really glad I have your number right now because when my son dies, because you denied his care, I will personally invite you to his funeral. And my son was approved, ironically enough, for another two weeks in the rehab. This is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. I shouldn't have had to do that. And it shouldn't be something that is so prevalent and not getting the attention that it needs. How, uh, at what point was he in that rehab? Was that after the accident? Shortly, a few short months before. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. After his, after his overdose in our house and before the, the crash. Yeah. Right. So he was, you did get care, but it's mm -hmm. no, by no means the care that he needed. Yeah. It was not adequate in any way. I mean, even the conditions of the places where you can stay, it's, it's become another business and a way for people to make a lot of money. I mean, I opened up an insurance bill the other day my son is currently in a halfway house and the bill for the program is get this $1,900 a day. And he's living in like a shack in, in a, another state I won't name, but it, the living conditions are deplorable and our insurance is getting billed $1,900 a day. Yeah. There's something wrong here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how has your son's battle with his mental health affected your other children? It's completely changed their lives. I have a daughter who's 23 and it deeply impacted her. Um, she's getting ready to get married and planning a wedding. And 
all of the things with Dylan's health, his mental health, his physical health have overshadowed the excitement that she's had in this beautiful season. And then we have his younger brother, uh, Dylan's younger brother is now the same age that Dylan was, um, when he attempted and he has had to be homeschooled, uh, even before the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> and he has had a completely different high school experience because of this. It was very, very difficult for him to go anywhere, for any of us to go anywhere in our town without being stopped and noticed. And it was too much for him. And then I have a little, and then I have a little girl who's seven and misses her brother. Yeah. Um, So the town that you live in is small? It's reasonably small. It's a rural town outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and Baltimore is a big city, but we, I mean, we have cows for neighbors, Tanya. <laughs> so did you feel after the accident, had, well, after the um, first overdose, did the community around you know that that had happened? They did. It was a really big story in our community. Um, a lot of our community members did fundraisers everything from restaurants donating proceeds to raffles and donations of food and everything you could imagine. Our community really loved on us during that time. And it was, it was overwhelming to be on the receiving end of that. It was very overwhelming. Because of the attention? Yeah. It's hard to, um, it's hard to have your stuff out there like that. Um, There was a lot of speculation about what had happened to him. There wasn't an an ability as, as the mom going through it, there wasn't an ability to both be there for my son physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, Mm -hmm. and to be there to answer all the questions of the community. So we would funnel um, a lot of the contacts with our friends, but we did have a lot, we had a lot of celebrity interaction. Um, Bradley Cooper um, is one of my son's absolute favorite actors. And he sent us a couple of videos. I mean, we, we got, it's great that people love you like that. Yeah. It's, it's really hard when you're in so much pain. Yeah. What have you done yourself to help heal through this? I let myself sit in it for a while. Um, I spent a lot of time being really pissed off. Yeah. Pissed off at who or what? Um, and I'm, these are I, think, really- I think, I think, I think pissed off at my son. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and it took me a long time to own that, yeah. but I've had to go through a really intense process of healing in all the ways. I had worked really, really hard to lose weight after my last um, child was born. I lost 75 pounds and I became a runner and I ran my first marathon at age 40. I mean, I was in the best shape of my life and I lost that through the process of trauma. (laughs) And I have had to really lean into my faith Mm -hmm. in God Mm 
and my energy work. Um, I am passionately juicing (laughs) to try to get the right nutrients in my body. I'm talking about the pain. Yeah. Instead of waiting until I, I have a group of friends that I have met through this heartbreak Mm-hmm. Some who have lost children to addiction and some whose children have overcome and are living a sober life for an extended amount of time, but we're all connected because of this disease. Mm-hmm. And they, they have been there for me and I have seen them advocate and fight even when they're hurting. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I didn't want to wait until my son's story comes to a close or until he heals. I wanted to give people hope that even while this awful situation is going on and my son is still struggling with full-blown heroin addiction now, I am learning how to get healthy again. Yeah. I am learning how to live with that. And that the only thing that I have control of is myself. Yeah. Yeah. How is your relationship with your husband? How has that been affected with this? Another good question. (laughs) So uh, I think both of us got a couple years of wedded bliss and, you know, restoration and healing under our belts that it has been an anchor for us. I think that it's really, really hard to navigate through healing with somebody else on the journey with you. I think it's a very private process. Mm -hmm. And I think that he and I are still navigating that and trying to come together at the same time. Um, But being fully transparent, my experience is I have already dealt with addiction more than once. And for my husband, He has never been on the receiving end of the addict's behavior, right? So so our experiences right now are completely different because he's going, how could he do this? Or how I thought, I thought for sure he was on the right path. And I'm like, no, dude, I've been down this road. Let me tell you, this is not how it goes, but it's, it's kind of created a little bit of separation as we've worked through this because his viewpoint is so much different than mine. Yeah. And what have you learned from that viewpoint? Oh gosh, I have learned, uh, that there were a lot of things that I felt with him that are normal because I'm now seeing how he's responding. You know, the anger is normal. The, the, I think the enabling in the beginning is normal. (laughs) Um, and I think it's given him more of a respect for what I went through too, you know, like what, what it put me through. I'm going to ask you about that word enabling. Do you think, especially parents in this situation become enablers unconsciously because they feel like, because they see that as not because they just want to love their child and they want to see the best in their child and the, the addiction takes advantage of that? Such good questions. 
Uh, so this is this, I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that addiction is such a toxic disease that it is hard when you, if you were to walk up to the window of somebody's house that has addiction in it Mm -hmm. and look in and watch the behavior of every individual, the home becomes so dysfunctional that you can't even tell who the addict is anymore. Yeah. Wow. Everybody plays a part. And so once the addict has been removed from the situation and everybody is getting the help that they need as far as counseling, mentorship, spiritual leadership, whatever it is that you need to rebuild, then you start to see hindsight is 2020 and wow, maybe we were enabling, but when you're in it, you have no idea. Yeah. It's chaos. Yeah. Cause you're just doing what you can do to get through day by day, I guess. Yeah. And you don't realize like, it's such a grad, well, at least in our, in our circumstances, it was a very gradual process. It was like, how, how do you go from a kid that is, you know, starting lineup on the football field, working out focused, driven to, to work a job and make money to a heroin addict. It's a gradual process. And so as his behavior changed and as his behavior patterns got more combative, more confrontational, he started getting lazier as things started to evolve like that, then yeah, I think I was probably going, oh, well, I can do his laundry for him or, you know, I can give him a little bit of money here because he hasn't had that many hours at work only to find out later that there was a lot more to it that was going on. Yeah. But it's a learning process. I think just like anything else, even if you've dealt with addiction before, like I had, it's hard to see the signs when they creep up slowly. And it's also hard to see them when you put your love, loving family blinders on, right? Like this is my baby. My baby would never do this. I mean, it's classic behavior. And even if you have the, the inkling or the intuition that something might be going on, it's hard to want to believe that because you don't want to see them as anything other than what they were before that. And we knew pretty early on that he was using, he was not good about hiding it at all. <laughs> and so we did know pretty early on, but that, but the other thing I, that I think is really hard with parenting older children is that you don't get the control over them that you have when they're little kids. You don't, you don't get to call the shots with where they are and who they're with when they leave your house and they go to school. And my son, he was using at school. He was using on school grounds. And was there anyone else in the, in his group of friends that was involved as well? Absolutely. The entire football team would get high smoking pot before every practice and every game. And these were things that, Once I found out after his overdose and before his car crash and he was in rehab, I was organizing local events to educate parents that their kids were doing these things on school grounds and really putting a voice to this because I wanted things to change. And then he attempted suicide and I stopped doing all of that. (laughs) And then COVID hit. What do you say to this education system and the people teaching the children? Like, it can't be that they don't see it going on. Like the coaches and the like, the trainers and support team around the football team. I absolutely believe that they one hundred percent knew that the boys were using. 
I think that there was a lot of panic initially when I went in and confronted the school board because I confronted them with, you know, if you didn't know this was happening, like you said, you didn't know, then I am now telling you it's happening and you can't say you didn't know, you right? You have to do something about it. You sure. have to do something. Now, I think that all of the plans of action that they had um, really started to slow down because of COVID. I have high hopes that maybe some things will change. But the thing is, is that kids have access to everything now because of the internet, because of social media, and everything has access to our kids. If there is something that they want to do or want to get bad enough, they will find a way. And that is what is scary. That is really scary. So then looking at your son's situation, if we backpedal and go, because no one wants to see their children go through what your son is going through or your family is going through. How do we, if they've got all of that access, how do we educate them around good choices or better choices? Like how do we stop it before it happens? The biggest question. It's a, it's a big question because I feel like my answer is big and that is we have to start teaching our children how to cope with life right. and stress. We need to teach them how to breathe. We need to teach them how to ground themselves in nature. Mm -hmm. We need to teach them how to sit down and write and put their feelings into words or art or music. And the thing is, is that as adults, we have to get our shit together first. Because if we don't have it together, what if they, what then we can't help our kids, right. right? And what I have found for me is that having gone through this with him and seeing that he's not capable of handling his pain, of, of finding a way to appropriately deal with that, I'm like, I have to make sure that I do everything I can to put myself out there, to learn about myself, to grow as a person, to set an example for him that I, he is free to do the same in a healthy way. He's very lucky to have you. He's very lucky to have you because there's a lot of parents who would be in this situation and blame all the externals. And I'm not saying that you're responsible for what's happened, but by taking responsibility for your own health, that's and leading by example, there's a lot of parents who um, who haven't got that ability yet to be able to do that. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing because those are the things exactly that we all humans need. Connection with nature, connection with themselves, connection with tribe, being able to be who they are and who they're meant to be freely without judgment and without criticism. It's a really beautiful thing. And it's something that I have been passionate about for a long time, but Dylan's, Dylan's situation lit a fire in me hmm. and I don't want to let another day pass where I'm not living the best life that I possibly can. And so right now I can't change what is happening with him. I can't change if today is his last day, I can't change if he decides to use. 
I can make sure that I'm the best version of the mom that I could be. I can make sure that I am taking care of my connection to my other children. Mm -hmm. And hopefully at some point, Dylan will come around. Mm -hmm. But if he doesn't, I know that I did the best that I could. That's all we can do. And that's what you would say to other parents in the same situation? Yeah. Do you have plans to pick up where you left off with the education? I know you said that you stopped advocating once COVID <laughs> and hoped that that change would happen, or do you have plans to continue with that? <laughs> so here's my plan. <laughs> I love talking to people. I love connecting with people. And I feel like there is a message to be shared. And so I am going to use our story and use our pain and I'm going to turn it into purpose Yeah. and every opportunity that I have to speak to anybody about it. I will, I hired a writing coach and I'm working on a book right now and I am absolutely willing when the court system opens back up to go and advocate for some laws to be changed, which is what I was doing before this happened. I want to make sure that I'm leaving my little corner of the world, a better place. And God gave me a voice and I'm going to use it. What support do you need in that? Because that's a very big soul purpose. That's what I would call that. What support do you need and what support do you have? Ooh, I brought the tears on. <laughs> it's a very big task because you don't think that your pain is going to be put on display for the world to see. Yeah. But I feel like that's what God's asking of our family. And when I didn't know if Dylan was going to live, I remember sitting in a parking lot and holding my hands up and saying, I surrender, whatever it is, use me. And I actually got the word surrender tattooed on my wrist. So what I need <laughs> is support. I need opportunities to be able to speak. Um, I've always dreamed of traveling the world and I believe that our story will motivate and inspire other people. And so anybody who has connections to people who would be willing to give me a platform to do that, I would be grateful. I want to build my social media following because then when I launch my book, if you're following me, you'll know, and you can get a copy and we can celebrate together. Definitely. I'll be there for you. Um, Do you have the community behind you now as well? It's different now. Um, I think a lot of people, when something initially happens, they're drawn to the shock and the intensity of it. And that tends to wear off after a while. It does. It's like it, I spoke to a friend of mine, Nation Croxton, about this. About well, Actually, it wasn't. It was one of my other friends on a podcast recently. It's after the Black Lives Matters movement happened and the shininess of being part of something good wears off, where does that leave people? Like people want to protest when they're really passionate about it, but when that passion gets old or when actually when that passion gets hard to follow through with, 
that's when it wavers and that's when people drop away. And that's why I asked you about community because you need to have a really strong network behind you. I will say, I will say my network that I have now is so solid. It's like God just cleared out the muck yeah. and left these gems behind that have stayed with me through things, have helped me to rebuild my life and have supported me and encouraged me along the way. I mean, like I said, I live in a small town and I'm sitting here telling you a woman in Australia that I want to be a motivational speaker and inspire people and travel the world, right? That doesn't happen here. I'm going to stop you there. You don't want to, you already are. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Here I am. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's crazy all because of a social media app. I got open with sharing our pain and it's taking me on this incredible journey. It's beautiful. Um, one last question. If you could share with other parents anything about what you have learned in parenting your son, what would that be? What, would, what do they need to look for and how can they advocate for their own children whilst it's happening? I would say... I think it's really important that every family has some kind of a support person. And when I say that in our family, it would be like a family therapist, Mm -hmm. somebody who knows the dynamic of the family and you check in with on a somewhat regular basis in order to have that relationship established before there's a trauma. Okay. That's one of the things I absolutely hindsight wish I had done. The next thing I would say is um, drug test your kids, but watch them take the test because they can fake it. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing I would say is trust your instincts. If something is telling you that something is off with your child, it probably is. And it is your right to search their stuff, their room, whatever you need to, to protect the other people in your home. Thank you so much for being here, Stacey. I am going to support you in um, getting the word out and helping you get onto other platforms to spread this because it's it's not just you. You're not alone in this. Like I have clients who are going through similar things and it's an insidious, two insidious diseases, addiction and mental health that need to have the spotlight put on them more than they are now. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that it's something that's becoming so common. Mm -hmm. It's happening to like all of us know someone who deals with anxiety or depression or they're bipolar or they're an alcoholic or there's so much pain. And the way that we are going to make the world a better place is by talking about the pain Mm -hmm. instead of hiding it. Absolutely. Thanks for being here today, Stacey. Thanks so much for having me. If you've been inspired by the guests on this podcast and you'd like more information about how to find your own soul purpose, you can contact us on rawheartandsoul.com for further information about our four, eight and 12 week programs. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on the podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Tanya Carroll and the producers, disclaims responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. 
and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, please consult with your licensed physician.